0: Good morning. Um, For those who don't know and obviously can recognize that I'm not a familiar face up here, I'm neither Pastor Mike or Pastor Dave. My name is Ifeo Jatayo, I'm the the youth minister. Uh, It's been my privilege the past three and a half years to lead uh, Crossfire and uh, to minister to our youths here at this church. Church. Um, And as Pastor Mike said, I'm Finished my seminary degree a few weeks ago, and I'm graduating uh, at Westminster, and um, it's it's things are coming to a close um, in that regard. Um, but I, I'm I really love Youth Sunday. Uh, the first time I, when I started here, I was told, "Oh, it's going to be Youth Sunday, and you're gonna you're gonna preach." It's kind of felt like being thrown to the wolves. But, but I've enjoyed it since then, especially because I get to lead worship with my folks. So it's, been, it's always a joy and a privilege to, to do that. Um, let me, let's enter into God's word this morning. Uh, our text is in Colossians chapter two, verse six to 15. This is God's holy, inherent word. Colossians two, verse six to 15. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for it is life to us. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to minister to your people this morning. I pray, Lord, that as we enter into your word, Uh, that it would also, again, replenish us. There will be living water, and through it, we will continue to be rooted in Christ our Lord and our Savior. We continue to grow in our faith, strong and firm, and we will be able to stand firm against all the wiles of the enemy and the world at large. Lord, may your word increase, and I decrease as I minister to your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in recent years, it's become something of a fad. I don't know if you've noticed, um, but I've been noticing it's become something of a fad to hear of former prophesying Christians, Christian leaders, as, actually, to publicly renounce their faith, renounce their walk with Jesus. Two years ago, it was a guy by the name of Marty Simpson who was a worship leader for Hillsongs, and Joshua Harris of the famed, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, that's an old book now. I don't think any of the young ones will know it. Uh, Joshua Harris's case was ex- especially sad because he was from a larger reformed circle. He was, a, he was a prominent pastor later on in life as an adult. And he was a contributor at the Gospel Coalition uh, conferences and website. He was also someone who grew up in the church from his youth, immersed in the church, constantly hearing the gospel, and eventually preaching it himself as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel. More recently, earlier this year, a man by the name of Paul Maxwell, another uh, a, a professor at Moody Bible College, a contributor desiring, desiring God, also renounced his, his faith, saying he's no declaring publicly that he's no longer a Christian. And as someone who has spent years ministering to young people in the church, I'm always alarmed when I hear these news, but then I'm, I'm also reminded that it is Christ himself who calls people from death to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is he who sustains and preserves his saints. So I pray, I pray then when I hear these, I pray for my own soul, and I pray for the souls under my care, that Christ will hold us fast to himself. But I also realize that it's it's increasingly hard in this present age that we live in. Um, and it's getting harder by the day, especially for our young ones, to publicly identify as a follower of Jesus Christ. Exhibit A is that people like Joshua Harris and Paul Maxwell can readily jettison the faith they've proclaimed all their lives and even led people to that faith. They can. Put, publicly jettison that without any sense of shame. In fact, they are celebrated by the world for pursuing their truth. Um, The reality is that for these men and for many more like them that are publicly renouncing their faith and walking away from from faith, whether publicly or privately, the reality is that they've sought salvation in other things apart from Christ. Christ is sufficient to keep those who rest in him. It is when we settle for things apart from him, often seemingly good things even sometimes, or pious things even, It is when we settle for these things as instrument by which we can find righteousness apart from God, it is then that we start on the road Mm -hmm. towards apostasy. In Christ, we have all that we need for life and godliness. Without him, we have nothing. So the challenge in this text that we read this morning, the challenge facing the Colossians Christians, the Colossians believers, is also the challenge facing us today as well. It is that by forgetting how truly amazing Jesus is, we are prone then to seek our truth and security in other sources. There's a progression here in Paul's language in this passage. He says it in the beginning, of verse, the beginning of verse 6. You've received Christ as Savior. The moment Epaphras, this is the man who preached the gospel to, to, to the church in Colossae. The moment Epaphras proclaimed the message of the gospel to you, you received Christ as Savior. But now you must continue to walk with him as Lord. He's both Savior and Lord. We cannot separate the two. It's like separating justification, being made right with Christ, and then the process that follows that, continue sanctification, life with God, being made more holy. You can't separate it. The same way you can't separate Christ as Savior, our Redeemer, and our Lord. So, having received him as your Savior, Paul says to the church, Colossians and he's saying it to you and I as well, continue to make him Lord over your life, by walking in him, being rooted in him, built up and raised up in him. In one manner, the Christians, the Christian's faith is quite simple. It is a singular focus on Jesus Christ. The image here is of a plant representing a believer, a plant in Christ, being planted, taking root in the ground, soaking up water and nutrients from the rich soil which is Jesus Christ himself. Or the other image that the Bible uses is of a stone resting on the sure foundation, which is Jesus Christ. These two images are familiar biblical examples of the Christian's dependency on Jesus. This is, our life in Christ is to be marked by this dependency, this union with Christ, which is the basis of our hope, and our perseverance, and our eventual triumph. And so this falling away that we've discussed, this apostasy, rejecting the faith, this falling away can only happen, I think, when we forget that Christ and his role in our life cannot be overestimated and cannot be overstated. We underestimate Christ's sufficiency for us when we start looking for supplements elsewhere and crutches elsewhere. So it's not so much that oftentimes we even apostatize and we say, I don't longer believe this. I don't longer believe in this Jesus or that he's my savior. It's that we, it happens gradually when we start to do Jesus plus something else. Jesus and something else. And we bring other things along as crutches when Christ himself is sufficient for our salvation and our continued war. And so this happens. This essential life with God, this, this falling away from God, who is our source, happens when we start to add other things to God himself, to Jesus Christ himself and his sufficiency for us. This is why in verse 8 of our text, Paul then goes on and, and, and warns the Col- 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 Colossian church, and he warns us too. He says this, See to it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Having encouraged the Colossians to remain rooted in Christ and the gospel, he now focuses his attention on the prevailing danger in in, in their particular context. He says to them, do not be deceived deceived by the philosophy that threatens to shift your focus from Jesus Christ. What is this philosophy that he's, that he's talking to? It's, it's likely uh, uh, some, exactly the way I've described it before. Teachings that you need to add something to Jesus in order to live the Christian life. Jesus and something else. And like the original hearers of Paul, we also live in a world of competing philosophies, don't we? Often contradicting one another, these philosophies do, with their offerings of the good life. Of happiness, of contentment, of cures to all that hails us. There are countless offerings available for us to sample. And all of them are founded on human tradition, as Paul says here. And all of them are doing one thing, they're seeking to overthrow the essential truth of God. And they're doing it in exchange. All they offer us, ultimately, all these offerings offer us are empty illusions. Paul says they're founded on human human tradition. They have their, and then he goes further, he says, they not are, they're not only founded in human tradition, they have their origins in the elemental spirits of the world. Actually, there's one Greek word for, that he used there uh, that's translated elemental spirits. And, and these, these elemental spirits, stoker, are probably, they probably, for the Colossians church, This are probably um, intermediaries between man and God. This, these, this is the philosophy of their days. The particular flavor of the Colossian heresy is that these spirits, these elemental spirits, are channels to God. Do you see the deception in that? It's not so much that you, you're still pursuing God, but, you know, settle, had these elemental spirits, they're channels to God. Keep in mind that these spirits need not be expressly pagan, they could have been angels or a particular ascetic practice that is meant to help you tune in to God at a higher level. They need not be obviously devilish. Otherwise, they'll be quite, okay, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're like, I don't want to go there, that is obvious. They need not be, the devil, the Satan is deceptive. In fact, in their day, as in our day, this particular philosophy probably has the appearance of holiness and piety. But Paul identifies the source of all of it, ultimately. The source of all such human tradition. He he grants it, he says, they're all human tradition. They have nothing to do with Christ. And they seek to pull us away from Christ, actually. And they all originate from the father of lies, Satan himself. And so he says, see to it, there is a watchfulness and a vigilance required of us, as, as believers in Jesus, so that we are not taken captive or kidnapped by these empty deceits. And This isn't just a Colossian problem, is it? As I, I, I'm sure as I'm saying these things, you're recognizing the, the things that threatens to pull us away in our day from Christ, from the gospel, from what we believe, from the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ in all things. We have a multitude of such empty deceits in our day as well, a multitude of them, and the devil couches them in different languages. They might be take they might take the forms of of empty piety, that, that says that you, you know causes you to think that your works of righteousness, your holy lifestyle, your piety, is the basis on which on which God's blessing lies, and then you you start to depend on your your righteousness, as opposed to Christ's righteousness. It's very subtle, isn't it? It might take the form of extolling the value of love. Who doesn't want to extol the value of love? But it extols the value of love at all costs, without the truth. That true love is based on God's truth, and not the acceptance of that which is an abomination to him. We have a language in our day now that love wins. It's the language of our culture. Love wins. The only thing they don't tell you is that the, that the only love that actually truly wins is Christ's redemptive love. That's the love that wins. And that love tells us that, and that love bids us to die to ourselves. and tells us that only that way do we have victory. They wouldn't tell you that. It might be also, these, these, these lies can come in, it might be the lie that you, through your advocacy, through your faithful resistance, and perhaps a critical mass of people like you, might bring about justice and peace in the world. Now, is, that, is that a bad thing to, to, to clamor for justice and peace in the world? that is actually a Christ-like thing, a godly. as Christians we ought to. But the deception there is that you then start to believe that it is through your efforts that justice and peace will come in the world. Whereas the Bible has already said, Christ who redeems, who saves, he's the one that will come again and consummate all things and bring everything into alignment again. It is not dependent on you and I. It is Christ himself who will restore, who will restore all things. and. The lie comes in that way and it shifts your focus away from Christ onto even good things. Good things. And then it becomes Jesus plus rather than Jesus alone and Jesus is sufficient. There is an opposite lie to that too. There's a lie that says since the world is doomed, you are not required then to to love your neighbor. Maybe it's not that, that crass. It might just say, well, the world is doomed and all these people are doomed with it. Look at them, look at their lifestyle, look at the things they, 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 they clamor for. And then you start to say, well well, they're doomed and then you stop to be hands and feet of Christ in the public sphere. You forget that you are to proclaim Christ crucified to the world, to the dying world. You forget that you're to be salt and light in the world. All of these things are lies in our days. There are many more, there are multitudes of them. It might be the lie that the right belief, orthodoxy, often as you see it, is all that's required. Even if that belief does not move you to loving your neighbor, orthopraxy, living out, out of the, the, the wellspring of, of right belief, living it out in the world, loving people sacrificially as Christ loves them. All of these offerings are wisdom according to human tradition. And they do not have their origin in Christ, Paul tells us. And he says, don't be taken captive, captive by these empty deceits because they're not according to Christ. And Paul's appeal in verse 8 is followed by the clause in the beginning of verse 9 there. The for or because introduces Paul's justification for why we shouldn't be taken captive by these things. He says, avoid being taken captive by this empty human philosophy for or because, from verse 9 to 15, he then gives us three distinct yet related reasons for being rooted in Christ and being built up in the gospel of Christ Jesus instead of following after the empty deceit of the world. In verse 9 to 10, he tells us that we have the fullness of Christ. We have fullness in Christ, right? In verse 11 to 12, he says, we have been set apart by Christ. In verse 13 to 15, he says, we've been forgiven and made alive through Christ. Do you see the the, the essential aspect of Christ there in all of those things, right? The sufficiency of Christ in all of those things that Paul offers. The overarching theme linking them is that we have fullness in Christ. We need not search outside of him for spiritual fulfillment. The gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. If we find it lacking, it is because we have not yet understood all the benefits that are ours through receiving and believing in Jesus and in being united with him. Let's look at these three points more closely. In verse 9-10 to 10, Paul says, for in him The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of God dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled in him, he says then. Look at the progression. The whole fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. And now you, as believers in Jesus Christ, you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You can stay rooted in Christ because you have fullness in him. Against the empty decease prevalent among us in our world and among the, the church in Colossae, the fullness of Christ is distributed among certain spiritual elements. That's the, that's the lie of the, of the, of, of the spirit, Colossian heresy that Paul is writing about. These people are trying to distribute, so they, they, they would acknowledge that, they might even say that Christ is the fullness of God, but that fullness is distributed among these elemental spirits. And so in order to get that fullness, you need to go through these elemental spirits in order to get to, to the fullness of Christ. These elemental spirits, these offerings of the world mediate benefits to us as men. That's the lie they tell. But we as Christians, we have a better claim, don't we? We have Christ. The substantial revelation of the Father. Jesus Christ, not a shadow, but the very image of God and the one supreme mediator between God and man, being both God and man himself. God himself in Jesus Christ has made his dwelling among us, making all other intermediaries obsolete. You don't need a go between. That's what Paul is saying. You already have the real deal. The one mediator between God and man is Jesus Christ. There is no go-between. You have to source by going to something that is just a fake imitation. Furthermore, by union with Christ, participating, we participate in this fullness that Christ has in himself. And without this union, we are incomplete. So do you see the essential aspect of being planted in Christ for our daily continued walk with God. It is non-negotiable. For us to continue to walk with God, walk in God, and to grow in Christ, we need to be planted in him. Now, this this union in, with Christ is complementary. It's complementary in that we receive from it. We receive. Although the complement flows only one way. Right? It only flows in one direction. We should never think of ourselves that we contribute to God's fullness. But God's fullness contributes to us. It flows in one way, and it flows to us. We do not have to subtract from it. This is why the Apostle John says in John 1, 16, that from his fullness, Christ's fullness, we have all received, Christians, believers in Jesus, united with Christ, from Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It is an overwhelming, never quenching source of grace for us as believers. And the one to whom we are united is head and ruler of all, Paul continues, "He's head and ruler over all principality and power. So why would you leave him who is the fullness of God and supreme authority overall to follow something lesser? Jesus is God's perfect revelation. As Christians, we enjoyed that perfect revelation and we need, go, we need not go elsewhere. The second point that Paul is making is in verse 11 to 12. He says, after you've stayed rooted in Christ, stay rooted in him because you've been set apart. Why do you stay rooted in him? Because you've been set apart as Christians. You're set apart by him. Verses 11 to 12 says this, in him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting up the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. There's a whole separate sermon here uh, in these two verses showing the correlation between baptism under the new covenant and circumcision under the old. But that's not my focus this morning. I I will add this though. Baptize your kids. Mm They're covenant children. I might be preaching to the choir, but I still want to say that. Baptize your kids. They're covenant children. Um, the larger trust, though, of Paul's claim here is for believers to stay rooted in Christ as we've been circumcised. Figuratively, he says, Paul says, we are circumcised in Christ. It's figuratively. He's, he's using figurative, figurative language here. This is an inward circumcision rather than a physical one. It is a circumcision of the heart. This is the circumcision of which the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 and the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 prophesied about, that there will be a day coming. This is the promise of God himself, where God himself will change the heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh, will put, we'll put a heart of flesh in place of the heart of stone, where God himself will cleanse his people by himself. Note the end of verse 11. The means, by which was, uh, by the means by which this circumcision is being done is by the circumcision of Christ. That's, important, that's an important word. It's not our circumcision. It's not our baptism. It's by the circumcision of Christ and by the putting of the body of the flesh. The work here is Christ's work. Christ is doing the work. And I think more, I think more than this, it is the, it's more than the circumcision of Jesus Christ as the baby, eight-day-old infant Jesus. Paul has in view more than that because that's only a shadow of the true circumcision which is his crucifixion on the cross of which, of which the, the infant's circumcision only pointed to. That's why he says, it's putting off the body of flesh which denotes Christ's death and what that accomplishes for us and for those who trust in him. The circumcision of the heart, the exchange of our hearts of stone for that of flesh, was accomplished through Christ's death and resurrection. And we participate in this through the sacrament of baptism. This is what Paul is tying in together here. right? So we participate in that death that Christ died on the cross. uh, Through the sacrament of baptism, we participate in the death, in his death, by putting off or killing off is a better way of saying it, are killing off our old nature with its desires in the waters of baptism. We're publicly declaring that we are dying with Christ, but, but we don't stay dead, right? We are also being raised from the waters of baptism in resurrection life. By, now, we've put off, our, put off our old self, right? Now we're putting on, in exchange for that old sinful self, we're putting on Christ himself as believers in Jesus. This is why Paul continued saying later in, in this same book of Colossians 3, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, he says to us, you have died, he's talking to the, the Christians who are physically alive, but he says, you have died because your life is hidden with Christ in God. All of these are the preeminent work of Christ, not ours. The point in being that all the persuasive philosophies of the world, all the human tradition, all of it, all of it are lies. The truth is that we have Christ. We have died with him in the waters of baptism. He has raised us up in resurrection life. And we have all that we need. And then Paul goes in and builds on it and says, Christ has rescued, and he tells us what Christ has rescued us from. You were dead, he continued, in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with Christ. He's forgiven all your trespasses. He's canceled the debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He set it aside, he nailed it to the cross. The deadness which Paul alludes to in verse 12. He's, again, repeating here, reiterated, it, and it he shows, it shows that it was as a result of our sin and our uncircumcised rebellion, our stony hearts that this has happened. We were enemies of God, completely alienated from God. Yet God made us alive together with our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the, 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 the exchange that God gave us in Christ? You were dead, alienated from God, but by the great exchange, by the great salvation that is wrought by Christ, God has made you alive with our risen Lord Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of our sins on the basis of Christ's work. Not only have we been forgiven, though, our insurmountable record of debt has been canceled with all its consequences. It's been canceled. The record of debt that stood as a witness against us of our hopelessness, Christ has nailed it to his cross. The demands of the law that we could not meet, he has met. The consequences of our failure, he has absorbed all of it in his body on the cross. All that is needed for you and I is to be right, for us to be right with God, all that is needed is Christ himself has accomplished it. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's put them to open shame, Paul tells us. He's triumphed over them in him. So all of these things that Paul says Christ has done, we get to be beneficiaries of. And as I think about these things, and I think about Paul's admonishment here, and then the context that we live in, with all the offerings of the world, the idols and the temptations to add things to Christ, or even to walk away from Christ, to pursue all these other things. I'm especially thinking of you, Crossfire, youth among us, and I, I, I try to think of an example that best encapsulates this, what life will be like in the world that you are increasingly living as exiles and foreigners in the world that we are in. You might be United States citizens, all of you, but you are, according to what the, God said, you are exiles, you're foreigners in this world, all of us are. And for those of us that are older, we might have lived in a, in a culture, in a world where it didn't actually look like we were foreigners. But it's not the same anymore. It's increasingly more apparent that we are foreigners and exiles in this world. How do we prepare our young ones for this, for this world? I think of the example of Daniel and his friends. Ananiah, mishael and Ezariah that we read about in our Old Testament reading this morning. They were exiles as well. They were prisoners of wars from Jerusalem when it was destroyed. They were appointed, they were were taken captive. They were probably from noble families of well respective families. They were taken, instead of killed, to go and serve Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean kingdom. And what did they do when they were taken? They were given new names, told to serve new masters. Right. They were given the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Forget your old names. Implied to that is also forget your old God. Forget your old master and Lord. You have a new master now. You have a new Lord. Worship him alone. Follow him. And, he, and it wasn't a hard thing. I, Nebuchadnezzar didn't put them, I mean, he did take them as prisoners of war. But what did he do? He brought them into his palace. What did he do in our readings of Daniel 1? He gave them the king's food. Look at all the offerings before them. You might think, wow, okay, things could be a lot worse. Daniel and his friends could be saying that. Things could be a lot worse. They saw the destruction in Jerusalem. They were taken in chains. And now all of a sudden, in the king's palace, eating the king's food, but also saying, worship the king's gods. Forget about your past. But what did Daniel and his friends do? they made up their mind to stay rooted in Christ and in the gospel. There's an Old Testament but they're Old Testament Christians. They made up their mind to stay rooted in the covenant that they've made with God from their infancy. that Perhaps their parents have made with God on their behalf and they've also grown up in. They made a covenant to stay rooted in that. Did it cost them? Do you think? Do you think it was it was without any consequence for them to tell the, the king's um, man that, well, we're not going to eat the king's food. We're going to just eat this food. And we're going to stay covenantly faithful to God because these foods are de- devoted to idols. As, as a faithful Jew, we cannot eat this. Do you think it cost them? Do you think it, was, it took courage? It did. It did take courage. They recognized, though, that they were in the world but not of the world. Right? That's New Testament language, but Daniel and his friends already recognized They were in the world, in this new world they're in now, but they're not off the world. They are Jews, covenant keepers with God. And they never forgot the true sovereign. They never forgot what the true sovereign is. Can you imagine? Your country has just been demolished, annihilated. There was no stone left standing in Jerusalem. The temple has been destroyed. The king has been killed or taken captive, and, 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 and there was death and, and, and destruction. And this great king, a world ruler, is saying, come into my palace, eat my food, just follow me, do what I say, follow my gods, do what I say. But they, they didn't forget what the true sovereign is, the true ruler is, that it is God Almighty and they stayed faithful. What else do we learn from Daniel and his friends? Not only did they do that, they were also engaged in the world, right? They didn't then go off and just sit in a silo. Um, They were a faithful presence in their world. Look at what Daniel, Daniel was uh, probably 15 years old when he was taken. These were all young men. They were not, you know, they were teenagers when they were taken from Jerusalem, right? and they made this stands. And Daniel, his whole life, he lived to, to. he was an old man and he died in Babylon, but he was ever at the seat of power through his whole life. He was counselor to the king. Even when the king changed, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? His son, his grandson is, was defeated by the Persians. What did they do? They said, well, Daniel, we recognize this man and they, they still put him in, he was prime minister or, or chief of staff to the kings, the emperor. Even when there were changes of government around him, God was steadfast with him. And did it cost him? Did people hate him? They did. They, 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 they tried to, to waylay him. They knew, for example, that he was a faithful man. They knew him so well that they were able to time the time he was going to pray to his God. And so they, they devised a plan against him. And God continually saved them. What about the other three friends? What about when they were told to to bow down to the king's idol? And they said, well, we know God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we know that he's sovereign, ruler of all things. And to him have we committed our lives and our fortune. And God delivered them. This is an example for us, both youth and adults, but especially for us young people. Look to these examples of what it looks like to be foreigners in the ex, in a in a in a foreign world. And I, I want I want to close with this, um, this this Jesus Christ, who we cling to, doesn't look to the world around us as a world conqueror, right? He doesn't look like that. He died on a cross. How could that be a world conqueror? I mean, to the to the to process to to. Um, to Gentiles, you, the cross is, a, is foolishness. How could that be a world conqueror? You mean this guy that died is the one you're saying he's the ruler of all, over all principalities and powers? But this is what um, a theologian says about the instrument of his death, and how it is actually um, the means of our salvation and life. The very instrument of disgrace and death by which the hostile forces taught their They had Jesus in their grasp, and they thought that by this instrument, which is the cross, they've conquered him forever. This very instrument was turned by him into the instrument of their defeat and disablement. As he was suspended in apparent weakness, they imagined that they had had him at their mercy, and they flung themselves at him with, with hatred and hostile intent, but far from suffering their attack, without resistance, he grappled with that attack against them, he grappled with them and he mastered them, stripping them of their armor in which they trusted, and he held them aloft on the cross in his outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. This is the Christ who we depend on and we trust in. This is the Christ crossfire that you need to cling to as you walk in the world, maybe even outside the four corners of this church and under your, even as you go away from your parents into college and into your own life as adults and you build your own life, this is the Christ you need to cling to. There is no other hope. There is no other source of life. There is no other place where you can have true freedom, true freedom, and there is no other love that wins but in Christ alone. Us pray. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings you've given us in your, in, in your Son Jesus Christ, by His death, his resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit have called us from death to life. you've made us sons and daughters of yours and that you abiding Holy Spirit is also helping us to walk rooted in you. Help us, Lord not to jettison this great heritage that we've been given, not to jettison for the lies that the world has to offer us, but to cling to you, to hold fast to you, knowing that you yourself are the one holding us and bearing us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.